If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 17, I want to continue where I was last week and finish that. We started in Mark 9 last week, and I'll refresh you about what that was about. You know the story well. A a man had brought his son to the disciples of Jesus to cast out a devil, and they were unable to do it. And so there was a crowd gathering and a lot of words, and Jesus came and he said, what's going on here? And then the father said, I ask your disciples to cast the devil out, and they could not, and if you can do anything, help me. And then that marvelous verse in Mark 9, 23, if thou canst believe, all things are possible. What a marvelous thought for everybody in this room, all Christians everywhere, if you'll believe it. If thou canst believe. All things are possible to those who believe, all things. And yet that's too good for the modern church. There's something wrong with that. That's not going to work. Because there are so few Christians, there are so few loyal church members and good churches everywhere that have seldom ever got an answer to prayer, have seldom ever extended their faith and got an answer. And it just seems like it's a wonderful thought in the Bible, but it just doesn't seem to work. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, why couldn't we cast this thing out in Matthew 17 and verse 19? I mean, he had just referred to them in verse 17 as a faithless and perverse generation. I mean, he had already sent these guys out before and In Matthew 10, he said, go and preach the kingdom, cast out devils, heal the sick, and so forth. They had returned in the power of the Spirit. They said, Lord, even the devil is subject unto us in thy name. And then here, this situation comes up, and it didn't work. And they said, why couldn't we cast it out? And so Jesus said, well, your heavenly Father sometimes doesn't want to work miracles. He would rather people stay in dire straits, that it would be better for you to suffer and learn how to contend with difficulties than it would be to always get results. Aren't you glad it doesn't say that? I'm reading from some new translation. That's a new modern translation somewhere. Just don't get your hopes up. This faith thing is nice reading, but it really doesn't work. And you think, well, why couldn't we cast this devil out, Jesus? You know what he said? Because of your unbelief. Have they not believed before? Or were they just empowered before and didn't have to believe? And here now, having had the experience, now they have to believe. Is that what it is? The title of the message is, what can we believe? Number two, what can we believe? We got a Bible full of promises. What, 8,000 promises? The Almighty has given these things freely to us. We seldom see it. It's like he has said it, but we're not getting it. Has he changed his mind? Did God say things and not mean it? Or is he, as he said in Malachi 3, I am the Lord, I change not. If he said it, he will do it. If he spoke it, he will make it good. 
And if that's true, and it is, then there's something wrong with our faith or our concept or idea of faith. Because the question is to a people who should know it, the church, what can we believe? Can we believe anything? Can you just make up something and believe it'll come to pass and it will? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so. In fact, I want you to turn again where we finished last week at 1 John chapter 5. You see, a lot of people, I believe, and a lot of church people have changed their theology to fit their experience. They tried it, but it didn't work. So therefore, the reason it didn't work is probably because God had a better plan and didn't want to change what you were going through. Maybe that's it. Well, if that would be true, then I would have a hard time having faith for anything because how do I know God ain't going to change his mind? But I'm so glad the Bible says, I'm the Lord, I change not. That if he said it, he will do it. It is forever settled in heaven. Now, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have in him or before him, that if we ask anything, you like that? If we ask anything that is according to his will, now that's specific, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, then we know that we have the petitions or the things that we have desired of him. Now, I'm going to take those three points and finish the message today. But in the meantime, those three points were, if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. And two, if we know he hears us, I need to be heard. I can't assume I'm going to be heard because he makes a point of that. If we know he hears us. And thirdly, he said, then we know we have it. And if we know we have it, why are we still trying to get it if we know we have it? I don't have it because I see it and feel it and taste it and smell it and touch it. I'm not trying to make the word of God true by believing it. The word of God is true whether I believe it or not. My faith is going to bring me into the benefits of God's word. That if he said it and I believe it, I'm going to experience it. I may not look like it. He just said, if you know he hears you, then you know you have it. Well, then if I know I have it, I'm not trying to get it anymore. I have it. It may not be manifested yet, but my link with God is that I have it because he is faithful that promised. But let me go back to the word confidence again because I spent a little bit of time on it last week, but I want to add the word heart or conscience to the word confidence because he said this is a confidence that we have. Now, the word for confidence means boldness of speech. It's speech that comes from assurance. I say this boldly because I'm convinced. It's like faith's confession. When you really believe that God has done something for you because you ask him, there comes with that the boldness of confessing it of being able to say to somebody else, oh, God has supplied my need. I think back uh, with the years ago when I claimed a car, and I knew I had to confess it 
Because if I was afraid to confess it, then I'm probably not sure that I'm going to get it. So I took the step of faith. Amidst all the dropped heads and the size of people, you know, he, now he thinks he's going to get a car. And he did. Then he got a house. And he got whatever else he asked for. And everybody's going, how'd you do it? And I'm thinking, we go to the same church. We listen to the same sermons. We have the same potential, the same possibility, same Savior. My faith is not something extraordinary. It's natural to a believer. For a Christian, faith is a natural thing. True faith, you don't even have to try to have it. It's there, just like sin and ugliness was there in the old days. You didn't, I didn't have to try to be ugly. When I wanted to say a bad word in the other life, I didn't have to think, let me see, what were, what were those words that, that, um, that mean ugly? They were just a natural part of me. Well, I believe as we grow in faith, your faith is just like that. You're in that gear. You just trust the Lord. The Holy Spirit supplies everything you need to think about. He equips you with the power to stand fast, and you just do it. Faith is a marvelous, marvelous thing, made so little of by the church, but it is the answer for every need, every desire of everybody in this room and those of you that are not in this room in other countries. It's the answer. It's what God is looking for. He said when he comes back, will he find faith? Not just people struggling and hoping something will get better, but people that are trusting and believing him, confidently confessing, like a word confident, boldly speaking, I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able. And if God said it, God is going to do it. Now, I believe personally, I believe this confidence that comes from believing is a matter of the heart. I've used the word heart quite a bit the last month. You know, I've said your heart is a revelation of where you're going. What's in your heart will be revealed in your life, and you'll speak it. When you speak, you're telling me where your faith is. I'm telling you where mine is. When we speak, we're out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks, Matthew 12. When we're talking about our problems and we're complaining and fussing and being critical, or if we're backbiting and gossiping, that's in your heart. That's the real you talking. I don't care what you've heard. I don't care how many marvelous sermons and great convictions you've had. That's your heart. That's who you are. That's still in the control room of your life, the heart. It still gives you words to say that you're with your will, you're willing to say. Because that's who you are. Turn to Ephesians 1. You've been there many times. I hope you have. When God gives a revelation to your heart about himself, he does it so that you will believe that and live that way. And I don't think you can believe it until he does. I believe the world has a lot of people who academically have mastered theology, biblical truths. I mean, they have mastered it. 
down to the words and all the different aspects that go with gospel learning, even archaeology. I mean, all the proofs and all of that. But having in your mind a memory and good recall of Scripture doesn't mean you believe it. It doesn't mean that's what those people trust in. Now, I don't know why or how, except that God, while you may be a student of Scripture and you may learn a lot of deeper things, that does not mean that God has given you the boom to live it. By boom, I think I mean conscience, confidence, desire. Because Martin Luther himself was quite a theologian. He really was. And yet there was a day, I mean, he had read a certain scripture many times, and one day he saw it, the just shall live by faith. How many times has he read that? Read it many times, probably wrote about it, had a comment about it, but one day it became what it was. It became a revelation to his heart, and it changed his life. It got him in a lot of trouble, but it changed his life. And there it was. Oh, that's the way it works. It's not by works. It's by faith, the just, and so on and so forth. Now, in Ephesians 1, I think it's in verse 17 in Ephesians 1, he begins by saying, I am praying for you that God would give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I wonder how important it is to God. Let me make a pause here. Hit the pause button. That's why it takes me so long to preach a sermon because of that pause button. I wonder how important it is to God for us to know him. Do you suppose it has meaning to God for us to know him and have a life that is affected by that knowledge? That would change the course of your life that would keep you from sin or steer you to righteousness, just knowing something? It is. It is a vital factor. And I may do this Wednesday night from Hosea. There was a time at God's complaint and reason for judgment. I mean harsh judgment. He said, these people do not know me. Look at the way they live. Look at the choices they're making, the way they act. It evidences to me and everybody around them, you don't know the Lord. Oh, but I go to church. I don't care where you go. Nothing is happening in there that's changing your life. You remember in Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 8, Solomon wrote, he said, I saw the wicked go into the house of the Lord. And I saw the wicked return. And then they were buried. He said, the house of the Lord didn't change anybody. Church has never changed anybody. It's given you a good feeling. It's somehow hope this will affect your life for good. But it's a place where God gives revelation. Something that goes ding in your heart. You don't know what the ding is? What's the ding? When the shovel hits the rock, that's it. You know, digging deep. You know you hit the rock when it goes, okay, clunk. But when that happens, spiritually speaking, when that ding comes, you find yourself like Luther going, oh, I never saw that before. And then it begins to affect your innermost being.
on the inside, there's, there's something taking place. Something new is added to your life that has never been there before. There's a revelation from God. The eyes of your heart, he said, is it verse 18? The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that we may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and on and on and on. The things he wants us to know that are life-changing. Nobody lives a complacent Christian life believing this, trust me. The power of God to change your life, to deliver you, to supply your needs and help you and lead you and guide you and bring you to victory never, ever, ever leads to a complacent life who believes that. Listen to it again. What is exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ and raised him from the dead far above. If a man believes that, he has to walk around knowing that I have been delivered. My salvation includes being seated with Christ in heavenly places. The devil's under my feet. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not a complacent Christian life. I remember my own life. I look back the last 40 years now whew, at the people I have known the so-called movement that I have seen, the messages from upstarts and, boy, this guy and this guy. And yet today I look back, for some of them it didn't take 20 years. They've already gone and quit, dropped it off and gone back to the world. You know why? Because they did not believe it. It was a movement. They were benefiting from it. It was fun and it was joy. But when they had to walk it out without a crowd, they didn't have it. So they went back where they started. They went back to the old ways, left their wives, did this, back into sin. What a modern day tragedy that people could even do that. And it started out as a great movement. Some of you were in it. I was in it. We're still here by the grace of God, by the grace of God. But he said in Ephesians again in verse 18, I like to read verse 18 from another translation. Now, I don't like other translations. Some of them are pretty clear, and they seem to express what is being said. I wouldn't subscribe to them. This actually comes from Benson's word studies. It's Greek. He said literally, verse 18, he says, being enlightened as to the eyes of your heart, the word understanding, it's not the Greek word for heart, but it must be similar in how it functions. He said, I pray that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, would give to you a spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of him. The eyes, as Vincent says, being enlightened as to the eyes of your heart, something on the inside that sees the spiritual sight. I see with natural eyes, there are also spiritual eyes that God exposes things to your heart too. And you see it, it goes ding or clunk. And that's what he's talking about. And notice that you may know 
And at the end of the 19th verse, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? I like to think myself in looking at a verse of scripture like that and thinking about it. See, commas, periods, and even chapter designations in the Bible are, are not as old as the text is. These things have been added so we could make sense of it. It's just not a bunch of words run together. People came along, I think, in the 12th century and, and did this and did that. I'd have to look at it. But what if it said this in the 19th verse? You judge. To those of you who believe, which is according to the mighty power of God. I like that because I am only able to believe as God enables me to believe. I may pride myself in how much I know, but only God can make me believe it. And when he does, I have no boast because I'm supposed to believe it. How many of you know we're still unprofitable service? When we've done all the mighty things that people praise us for, we are still unprofitable servants. Because what you did, you're supposed to do. What you believe, you were supposed to believe. The choices you made and that got you through the day, you were supposed to make them and get through the day. You have no boast, no need to put your picture on the wall. We don't need that. But back to that point in that 18th verse, the eyes of your heart. One translation says the eyes of your heart being enlightened. This is the work of the spirit, verse 18, of wisdom and revelation. It's what God's spirit does. God comes to you personally by his spirit. He's active in this room right now to make clear to you what he said. He may not make it clear to somebody else, but he'll get you the place where you go, oh, oh God. And you walk out of here, oh, heavy, heavy with conviction. Now you got to wrestle with God. You got to take some time to, Deal with yourself in light of what he just showed you. You cannot continue in another way, in another direction, because God has shown you what to do. Your heart now embraces that, and it's in you like your conscience. It's in you like your conscience. Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart with all diligence. For out of your heart proceed the issues of life, and it does. Because if what comes out of your heart is 1 Corinthians 6, you're in a bad place. All those sinful ways. Out of your heart proceed the issues of life. Psalm 119 and verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart. Why? that I might not sin against you. There is no other right way besides that way. Are you with me? There is no other right way. That's the only right way. And you hide that word in your heart. You keep it there. You don't dread it. Oh, I got to give up. No, you don't dread it. That word's going to save you. This is part of God's working out your salvation package. This believing to the end deal. Constant change is going to take place. Constant change. 
Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. Look at verse 4. Here's what the devil does to all kinds of nice and sophisticated as well as common people like myself. He says, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them who believe not. Now I'm asking the question in this message, what can we believe? Well, these people, what can they believe in verse 4? Oh, just think about it. In whom the devil has blinded whom? Whom has the devil blinded? Say those that believe not. So if a man does not believe, then he is blinded. But I'll tell you what, he had a choice to make about it. All of us have a will. All of us can make the right choices. When God speaks, that's the time you choose. And a lot of folks say, well, I'm not too sure about that. And that revelation was no longer clear. It was fuzzy. They couldn't see it anymore. But the Bible says he blinded the minds of those who see not. One commentator says he has blunted their mental discernment. They can't even think through it and see that. Though they can quote it. There's no problem quoting that. and There's no problem in a discussion over coffee talking about it. But they don't get it. They have eyes to see, but they can't perceive it. They think it sounds pretty good in some of the things that they say, but they don't get it because they don't live it. It's not in their heart. He said, in whom the God of this world is blind to the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, could shine in. Verse 6, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined where? In our hearts. That's where God deals with us. Our mind is deceitful. It'll talk us out of what God meant by what he said. It'll try to convince you, well, that's just his opinion. You don't have to believe that. But he said, when God shines in your heart to give light, verse 6, to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is in the face or the person of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, there's no greater moment in church or when you're alone meditating or praying. There's no greater moment than when God gives you a revelation of his word. You cannot get it any other way. You cannot go somewhere and get it from the headiest of the heady. It is only by divine revelation, usually in some divine moment. When God comes to you like the rain, like the spring rain, and offers to you what he is saying clearly. Now you'll have to think about it because he won't make you believe it. He will tell you that you can believe it. And you can be sure when God shows you something, the devil will be right there saying, hath God said? It's a war zone. The war that goes on in a Christian's mind is as real as you sitting here today. The devil will do whatever he can to talk all of us out of what he's saying. And to convince you that you're pretty clever in your understanding. And, you know, you don't have to do that. And 20 years later, you're sitting in a church the same as you were 20 years ago. You haven't changed. You haven't grown. You're just sitting there. 
because the heart became stagnant. There's a reason why Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful. The heart can mislead you. It monitors everything. And if it's not changed, if it's not renewed, if you don't get a new one from God, a new heart, then the old heart is very religious. And it will talk you out of worship. It'll talk you out of a lie, head covering. It'll talk you out of foot washing. When was the last time we had a foot washing? How many years has it been? 15 years? Bring your bucket to church Sunday morning and a towel. And your neighbor said, where are you going? I'm going to church. What are you going to do with that bucket? I'm going to wash somebody's feet with it or that pan. You're going to do what? Yeah, I said, we won't wash feet. John 13, do y'all do that in your church? <laughs> I don't think so. We're more dignified than that. Well, we're not very dignified here. We're just a bunch of lonely souls that don't have much sense, I guess, except to believe what God said. <laughs> but anyhow, God shines in a man's heart. That's what he's looking for. That's how he comes to you. He comes to your heart. When your head's involved, you think about it and reason with it and try to figure it all out. Just like people in miracles, you know, the natural man, when he sees a miracle, he tries to figure it out. The Jordan opened up or the Red Sea opened up and all these people went through it. Well, the natural man, he doesn't believe in miracles. Oh, he read that verse and he knows what it said, but he reasons within himself because he wants to bring God down on his level. You see, he and God are about the same. Well, what that is, we have learned from astronomy, planets, you know, that lined up and things flying through space affected this and everything went sort of momentarily haywire at a, pl haywire at a certain place. That's okay. It just sort of hit a little spot in Egypt and it just, and it just kind of opened and the water opened up and everybody went, oh. It was not really a miracle. It was just, it was a natural phenomenon. Like that person one time who went to a church where they spoke in tongues, took his recording and he came back and got his little parcel of experts to analyze the language and the inflections and see what, and they came to the conclusion it's just a bunch of gibberish. Huh. Well, I don't know that God doesn't confound the wise with gibberish. How can you take something spiritual and explain it naturally? But when you get that kind of a spirit in the church now, all you've got is church. You got a meeting place, probably a pretty nice place. You don't have any problem with borrowing. You can borrow all the millions you want if you got a big enough church and build you a fancy fine place. It's just like the guy that said to his wife, said, we're going to be eating off a golden place before long, girl. And she said, will the food taste better? We're going to be riding in a fine, fancy car. Will we get there any quicker? 
We're going to get us a big, fine, fancy building to meet in. Will we be more spiritual? Nothing wrong with a, a golden plate if you're hungry or that's all they eat on or the, a fine car or a fine and fancy building. Nothing wrong with it. But it never, none of this stuff ever makes you spiritual. Making money doesn't make you spiritual. Being a great discoverer or scientist doesn't make you spiritual. Being the baddest thing walking the street obviously is not spiritual. Listen to me, all of you. When God gives a revelation to his people, all of that stuff changes. It's no longer the need in your life. It's no longer the driving force in your life. Your heart's got some new light. You're seeing things differently. Now, I'm still asking, what can we believe? So hang with me here for just a moment. Turn to 1 John. We were in chapter 5. Go to chapter 3 and verse 18. Now, remember what I've just said here about the, the heart and the conscience. And let me add this word to it. Your heart, by design, becomes a monitor to your thoughts, your actions, and your deeds. I believe it's where your conscience might be. Because if you're not acting real, if you're being fluffy, hypocritical, or deceitful, your heart tells you that. You don't want to listen to it because you're trying to promote yourself. But your heart will tell you, you don't believe that. You didn't mean that. That's not right. You're putting on a show. You're trying to impress people. Your heart will tell you that. That's what's in your heart. When God puts his word there, it is the way. And when you're not living by that way, God's little siren goes off. That's your conscience telling you you just did wrong. That was sin. You need to repent. You're not living right. That's not righteousness. Are you in chapter 3? Look at verse 7. Little children, he said, be not deceived. You know what he said? For he that goes to church is righteous. What does your Bible say? Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does what is right is right. Now, if I want to be right or live a righteous life, what's the basis for it? It's God's word which alone is right. There is no other right way. Didn't the Bible say there is a way which seems right? There is a way that seems right, but it's not right. And actually, if you go in a different direction than what God says, you're going in the direction of death. Well, that ought to make your heart go, whew. We're only on this earth a short time. You don't even get to know how long you stay. We got to get it right. Because if I don't do what's right, I'm not right. I don't care what little altar prayer you went to. I don't care. The scripture says, if you're living right, you are right. If you say you're right, but you're living wrong, you're not right. That's in Ezekiel. First John chapter 3. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in thought or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, by this, we will know that we are of the truth 
and shall assure our hearts before him. If I'm honestly loving you, caring for you, meaning what I say to you, and interested in your life and how it can be improved, whatever I could do. He said, my heart gives me peace. That's right. That's the way you're supposed to do it. Listen, my heart on the inside of me is just compartment. My life is going to be judged by what comes out of this. And if what's in my heart is to live a right way and I'm falsifying that or being deceitful about it, I'm wrong. Now, if we love in deed and in truth, not just say I love you, brother or sister, but when the opportunity comes, what is it, verse 17? Whoso hath this world's good and seeth the brother have need, if he shuts up his bowels of compassion from that person, how does the love of God dwell in him? That's not what God does. When God moves on you to help people, you do it because that's God's desire for you. He uses you to love people. And you don't put in the bulletin, I did it. You just do it because it's God's will for you to do it. And then in verse 24, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Now, when would my heart condemn me? Now, bear with me. My heart will condemn me when what I am doing is not right. Maybe just a little bit not right, but it's still not right. Do you suppose God holds us to a fine line? If my heart condemns me, that siren goes off. And there's only one way I can be delivered from guilt. And that's by God. It's called repentance. Let me read this translation to you. Again, I don't promote these things. I have access to them. Verse 20, he said that if our conscience condemns us, yet God is greater than our conscience and knows everything. Does God know when I'm wrong? Does God know what I'm thinking wrong and about to do wrong? Does he know it? Then why would he have any reason to correct me? Because he doesn't want to judge me for one thing. That's what chastisement's about, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 11. God has invested an interest in me. He's put his spirit in me. He's jealous for me. He cares about me. He's not going to let me get away from him. He's going to make sure when this life is over, I'm living on his terms and doing what's right. If I don't do what's right, I get judged with the world that's doing wrong. So he makes sure that I get the message and he turns me right. Another one says that whenever our heart condemns us. So we're talking about the heart, my conscience, this monitor on the inside of me that lets me know when I'm not doing right and gives me assurance when I am doing right. You made a big change in your life. You backed away from something you used to do because, well, you can't do that and serve the Lord, so you make the change. And your heart has something it hadn't had before. Peace. Peace. 
Look at verse 21. Beloved, if our heart condemneth not, then have we what towards God? That's the same word we saw in 1 John 5, boldness of speech. I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he's able. Is that bold to a crowd that doesn't believe it? Well, of course it is. Is it right? It is. You're not trying to impress people. You're just trying to say, this is what I believe. And I believe it so much that I will not compromise it. I will not change it. God said, this is the way walking in it. There is no other right way for me to go. If it costs me everything and so on, so on, so on, so on, then so be it. But this is what he said. And then verse 21, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, we have confidence before God. Meaning what? Oh, now hold on to your seat. Because we'll go verse 21. This is the tennis shoe verse. Do any of you know what tennis shoe verse is? You're fixing to run. Running shoe verse. Listen to it. This is for us. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because. Because of two things. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. That's called righteousness or doing what is right. The reward for those who hear his word, adjust their life to it, and choose to live like that, have this blessing in their life. Whatever you ask, you will receive. And I think the modern church is doing exactly what you're doing. Huh? But it's true. I stand here confidently and boldly to tell you this is true. And whatsoever we ask, we receive from him. What was prior to that? Having a clear conscience. Having no sin evident in your life. You know, when you know you have something, you have peace. To me, that's one of the greatest ways of knowing there is. Peace. Whatever we ask. Now, go back to chapter 5. And we're going to close with this. These three points. I told you we would come back to this. Having established the heart as a monitor... The declaration that a Christian can only do what God says in order to be right and having his heart so affected by God that when you're not doing right, your heart condemns you or you get smote in your heart as David did. Your heart smote you. Listen to this. Verse 14 again, and this is the confidence that we have in him. Number one, if we ask anything according to his will, there are books, volumes, lengthy chapters written on how to know God's will. 
all the things that come into play in a Christian's life when he knows without any doubt that this is the will of God. What can we believe? We cannot believe beyond the will of God. That's the limit of our faith. And again, I said last week, there are specific promises, you know, for healing and for deliverance and supply of your needs. Those are specifically spelled out. It's clear about them. That's God's will. Psalm 103, forgives your iniquities, heal your diseases, crowns you with loving kindness, does this. and I mean, that's clear. Psalm 91 is clear. With long life, he'll satisfy you. It's not something you have to struggle with to pray about. It's clear. Then there are general promises that, well, they're not spelled out in the Bible. Remember we said that? Claiming a car, the word car is not in the Bible. Chariot is. But there were no air-conditioned chariots. But Mark eleven twenty four, 24, Jesus said as a general promise, what things, what things soever, what things soever you desire. Most people say, well, we can't believe for cars. Why not? Is it in your heart? Has God put in your heart the ability to believe for a car or a house or new carpet? What's his limit? He's unlimited. Don't limit yourself because you can't figure it out. You're not supposed to try to figure it out. You're supposed to believe it. A job, a better job. Money, being out of debt. Can God do any of that? Is it his will? That's your first duty to find out what the will of God is. Your faith cannot go beyond it. Is it God's will to heal? How do you know? All you can say if you know is because he said it. He said, I am the Lord that heals you. It was a covenant name. He said in Psalm 103, he heals all your diseases. He didn't say some of them. He said in Psalm 107:20, he sent his word and healed them. You've got it in your lap. He said in Proverbs 4, his word is medicine or health to our flesh. He said in Isaiah 53 that Jesus bore our diseases and carried our pain, by whose stripes we are healed. He said it in Matthew 8. He said in James 5, is anybody sick? Call the elders of the church. He said the prayer of faith will heal the sick. He said in Mark 16, these signs shall follow those who believe. They'll lay hands on the sick. How many more verses do we need in any church for that to become real? Let me tell you something. It doesn't become real. It is real. It becomes what it's supposed to be by revelation to your heart. And when, wow, that's when you begin to act healed and walk in a way that gets you in trouble. This is what he said. I mean, he said, what things soever you desire, if we ask anything according to his will, let me ask you all a very simple known answer here. Question, will you have a known answer? How do we learn his will and find out what it is? Hmm. 
Brother Hamilton, after 35 years, I don't know. All right. Thou seeking servant, let me tell you how to know. Would you like to know? Turn to Romans 12. If you don't mind. I'm going to fuss at you in a minute. Romans chapter 12. I'm about to take off running up here because I like all this. You know what? After 40-some years, this has never, ever gotten stale. If I went somewhere and preached tonight and then tomorrow night, I'd get as excited then as I would be right now. You know why? Because by revelation, this has become a way of life, not only that is discernible, but real. It does work. We do have this testimony. It's never been easy, but it works. Romans 12, 2, he said, every man, verse 1, is to do what? He's to present himself, what kind of a sacrifice? He's to present himself a living sacrifice, which would mean for us, in a nutshell, we should aspire to holy living. Because what else could you be if you gave yourself constantly to God as a sacrifice to do with you whatever he wants? You're his property, and it's his choice what he wants from you, period. Amen? Bought with a price. We belong to him. Are you with me? He said, then again, that first, but we offer ourselves on his altar without spot. That's reasonable for God to ask us of that because it leads to his plan being unveiled to you. Look at verse 2. And be not fashioned or conformed to this world. But he said, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. You're going to have to unhook from the world and your tomorrows and get a hold of right now. When we come together here like we are now, God meets us right now. This is not a time for tomorrow. If you get caught, you're done. A text message and in church. But this is not a time for that. It's a time to be still and know God and to let God speak to you. I know I'm doing all the talking, but you've got to listen because that's the way it works. Teachers isn't everybody talking at once. You listen. And you begin to digress and assimilate in big words. You begin to think about what you're hearing. You challenge yourself because the Holy Spirit will cause you to do that. What about you? So you begin to think like this. Your mind is giving new things to think about. And you're to switch over from the old ways. Well, I don't know about that. Well, I can't. Well, I thought I'd die. You quit talking like that because you quit thinking like that. You begin to realize, I can do all things through Christ. Jesus said, the Bible says, you begin to have a, a word of God inside minded heart your heart begins to meditate in the word. You begin to ponder spiritual things. You're sitting here, you're hearing something, and you're thinking about it. It's God giving you information. It could be for whoever a divine moment this morning. God is speaking to us, turning us away from what he must judge so that we are in right standing with him and our conscience it's clear we have assurance before God. 
But he says, as our mind is being renewed, it's renewed for this purpose. At the end of verse 2, that we might know what? That we might know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There's nothing more vital for us to know. Your faith is entirely based on God's will. Any other basis for faith is not faith. If we're not believing according to his will this morning, it's not faith. You may have a good effort and all of that, but it's faith when it's based on the word. And the only basis for faith is God's will. And if you want to know his will, I believe this. There's that time you get still before God. Right now is a good time. You're not going anywhere. You're not dancing, spanking, or shouting, getting fussed out or fussing. You're just being still. And God speaks. And he begins to declare to you maybe simple things. Maybe he begins to show you the waywardness of your life, the way you're living, how you're acting. Maybe it's school or it's amongst each other. He begins to deal with your life. He didn't buy you to leave you alone, let you go to church, say, oh, he's a good church boy. That doesn't mean anything. Again, I look back over 40 years. I've had my fill of that. But he said, we must withdraw from the world, be not fashioned. We let go of the world because it's killing us. And we allow the Holy Spirit to begin transforming our lives and our direction. And lo and behold, in the process of all of that, we're beginning to think new thoughts. God is beginning to show us new ways. The mind is being renewed, and the reason for that is so that we can know God's will. Go back to 1 John 5, because the second thing he mentioned there in 1 John 5 is if we know that he hears us whatever we ask. There's a lot in the Bible about this, about hearing you being heard. Not everybody's being heard. How many of you know that there are people who think they are heard because of much praying? Matthew 6. Be not like the hypocrites who pray with long prayers and much praying because they think that by much praying they will be heard. Would you agree with me that praying long Prayers and continue all night long. Oh, God. How many of you know? That's not what it's about. When faith reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, it doesn't have to use the other hand to hold on. Once you got there, you're there. And once you're there, everything you put it in comes into your life. Whew, here it comes. But he says, he hears us. Who does God hear? Does God hear any time we pray? Or is there a quality of life that we must live in order to be heard? Let me give you another question. You preachers over here think you can live any way you want to, and when you get ready to pray, God listens to you. I, how do you know it doesn't say that? Psalm 66 says this, If I regard... Iniquity in my heart. The Lord will not hear me. 
Go back to what I've already said about that, about how would I regard iniquity? My heart. It's that work of God declaring you're wrong. And if I don't do anything about it because, well, you know, this is a chance to make a lot of money. If I regard iniquity in my heart, God doesn't hear me. Boy, a lot of people might call me to pray. Oh, we need you to pray, brother. We know you're a man of faith. And, and if I'm not right, you know what my prayers do? They don't even get it to the ceiling. But God said, if you ask anything according to his will, you found his will. You know that this is his will. He said, if you pray, he hears you. Yes, and you got to add the other things he says in the Bible. Don't take it out of context. Believe what it says. But you got to live right. Unholy people. Do you think the guy that owns a pool hall that's been cussing like a, well, I would say sailor, but we got one in here. Cussing like a heathen all week. Do you think that he goes to church and prays? There were people like that who went to the house of God. You know what God said? Who told you to come here? Who asked you to come in here? This is not where you should be. I do not regard you. Jeremiah chapter 7 and chapter 11. Jeremiah seven sixteen. The context is too long. But these are people that are going to be judged they're beginning to experience the wrath of God. They don't want any more of it. They want it to stop. Listen to this. Therefore, pray thou not for this people, neither lift up or cry nor make prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear them. Then does God on occasion not hear prayers? All right. How do you know he hears you? How do you know your prayer works? The Bible says the affectionate, fervent prayer of a church member, righteous man. So that goes beyond just attendance, doesn't it? Righteous is a defining word. It defines a life. A man who wants to live like that, his prayer has effect with God. Look in chapter 11 and verse 11. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon them which they shall not be able to escape. That's why some people never get out of that hole they're in, right here. I will bring evil upon them which they shall not be able to escape. And though they cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Now, folks, trust me, there are other verses like this in the scriptures. A number of times, one of the great judgments of God on his people is, when you pray, I will not respond to you. You have heard me. You've heard the priest. You put your hands up. You've complained about the law. You didn't want to do that. You wanted to run around with the Moabites and the Hittites and the Hivites and go up on those hills and under every green tree and worship their idols because they were fun, man. They had a lot of parties. And you turned away from me. And you went to a craftsman. You took a craftsman, a log, a piece of wood, and you told him, make me a god out of it. And he fashioned it out of there, and you set it in your house, and you said, oh. Say, how could they do that? Well, the days of Moses, they made a golden calf, didn't he? In the desert. And then the priest said, this be thy God, O Israel. This is who brought us out of Egypt. You just made the stupid thing. Excuse me, the dumb thing. 
that thing you made out of a piece of wood, did you know that's going to rot? You got a rotten God. It ain't going to last. And you took the shavings off of that wood and cooked supper with it. And that's your God? This is why God, one of the main reasons that his judgment was so harsh with his people. I led you out of Egypt. I did this and did this and did this. And if that wasn't enough, I did this and this and this. And look at your response. Church, this is why people's prayers aren't being heard. Because God is not in all their thoughts. He is not the focus of their life. He is set aside to do your own thing. And they're not hurt. That's why we have to be still and let God deal with us. Go home and make a decision. God, I haven't been living right. Your heart will tell you that. I want to get it right, Lord. I want to get it right. And finally, you know, another reason you're not hurt, don't you, is unforgiveness. I said unforgiveness. See, like Catherine doesn't like Mimi. Well, let's play like you don't. She won't set wire. Talks about her. They see each other and say, hi, praise the Lord. You know why that's like that? Because a long time ago, one of them did something to the other one. See, I can pick on them because they've been here forever. And one of them never forgotten. When you don't forget, you seldom forgive. I remember what you said. Well, I remember, yeah. Oh, what a long sermon that would be. But unforgiveness, resentment, ill will against, withdrawing from somebody because essentially you don't really like them. They're your brother, your sister. And you made a choice. Not what God gave you to make. That's not what he said. But you made a choice. You drew back. Jesus said, and when you stand praying, forgive. For if you will not forgive others, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. That's Mark 11 after the verse we quote all the time. Sermon on the Mount. Forgive us our debts, trespasses, as we forgive others. If we're not forgiving others, our sin is still with us. Matthew 18, the last verse. Whoo. But finally, in 1 John 5, go back and we'll finish. The last thing he said in verse 15, where he said, if we know that he hear us, whatever we ask, and lastly, then we know we have it. Let me ask you a question, and I'm going to let you go. How do we know we have what we've asked for? Because most people say, well, I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't feel any better after I prayed. I don't look any better. I don't sound any better. I can't walk any better, move any better. You know, how do I know I have it? There's no appearance of any change in my life. It's faith. F-A-I-T-H. The substance of things you expect. And it's the evidence of what you don't see. You mean my healing is evidenced by my faith? Yeah. Because once you connect with God, healing is like a, a sped arrow. God takes your deliverance and and the arrow is on the way. You may not look better. You may feel worse. 
people will mock you or ridicule you because you're confessing that confidence thing that you're healed. And they look at you and say, well, you don't look healed to me. What kind of religion are you in? You're lying. And then one day in the midst of a service, all of a sudden, the full manifestation comes. Boom. And there it is. Nobody can deny it because they know how you got it. You got it by believing. Listen, there's nobody in this room that has any condition in their body. No flaw, no condition, nothing in this room that God cannot fix. Nobody. There's no social situation, no marriage, no children, no problem that's in the privacy of your home that God cannot fix. It all comes down to whether or not you want to believe what God's promised. But you see, if you're wondering about it, I'm going to ask you the question. What can you believe? What can you believe? Can we believe that God will do what he said? What things soever you desire when you pray? Believe. All things whatsoever you ask in prayer? Believing. That's how it works. And when you believe something, it's the end of seeking it. If I believe I have received, if I believe we know that we have what we ask for, doesn't the 15th verse say that? Then we know what we have what? If I just claim my healing because I saw it in the Bible, convinced of it, and my heart gives me that peace, and I, what do I do? I boldly what? I boldly confess, do I? That I'm healed. That's what you do. She does. We serve a marvelous God. We live in trying days, but it's a most marvelous day because I believe God's going to bring it all together. Not everywhere, but everywhere there are believers surrendering, seeking, opening their heart to God and a desiring to live right according to what he's taught them. Something's going to happen. I look forward to the day the gifts operate. Again, everybody's heart gets right and clean. You know, we're one accord. One accord, not Honda, but one accord. <laughs> and God sees the kind of atmosphere that can handle miracles. And it happens. And restoration of bodies takes place. Problems are solved. That problem you've had for years, somebody stands up and begins to prophesy. Brother so-and-so, the Lord, I believe, just spoke to me and told me that you have sought for this or you've sought for that and you have labored over this and struggled with this. And the Lord says tonight before you go home, he's going to do this. And he specifically says what it is. It's evident that God showed somebody something about you. Boom! And we go home thinking, man, well, church wasn't long enough tonight. Let's get back in there again next chance we get. He does it again. Then suddenly everybody gets to whooping and hollering and dancing because he has made me glad. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, deliver us.
from everything that is wrong, everything that is vile, everything that's flawed, everything in our life that's not the way it should be. Deliver us. And I pray in the name of Jesus, you will deal with everybody in this room, everybody that's listened, everybody that's watching, that everybody has a conviction about something, a conscience dealing with us. That's your work, and I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jay's going to read the story. Tim doesn't mind. He's rejoicing. Oh. This is Judah. 2014, at the beginning of February, Judah told us that his foot hurt. We prayed for it. Realized the next day that it was actually his knee. It was slightly swollen, warm, pink. We prayed again, thinking it was just a minor injury. Over the next week, we encouraged him to stay off it and rest. Shortly after we ordered him a knee brace, he stopped walking completely. I remember thinking... During those weeks, this is an injury. They take six weeks to heal. He'll be fine after six weeks. So it was, became apparent there's not just a knee injury. It was like an explosion in his body. All of a sudden, his head, his neck, his back, his other knee, everything was stiff and painful. That Sunday, he was anointed with oil. We saw some improvement at that time. The next few weeks, God taught us the importance of worship as warfare. Second Chronicles 20 is a great story of praise bringing victory because it's a story about the nation of Judah. Time went on. He was being attacked more and more. I don't want to glorify the devil by sharing these details, but at the same time, I don't want to minimize what Judah went through or what God did for us. Yet most of March through July, he was in excruciating pain, especially his head and neck, to the point where he could not turn his head or move it up and down. Both his knees were swollen and wouldn't straighten. He couldn't sit up on his own or even comfortably ride in a car. <coughs> Driving over any small bump would be painful. He lost at least a quarter of his body weight, had several raw, infected areas, pain using the bathroom, throat congestion, and it seemed like he was losing his hair. I found a lump on his jaw. It would shrink and grow daily. Most nights, Tim had to sleep in his bed. He woke up every hour because he was in so much pain and couldn't roll over on his own. Some days, Tim would come home from work at lunch because the circumstances were so negative. Although we were deaf, there were definitely mind battles and the temptation to fear. Overall, we were in agreement and had peace to keep him home. Because of the delicate nature of having a severely sick child, we weren't able to share many details. I really believed that we were fighting for his life during this time. Every day we confessed life over his body. The pain would go away. Every single cell was perfect. That his immune system functioned normally. His white and red blood cell counts were balanced and every bone, joint, muscle, and ligament was restored. I remember thinking over and over, Judah will not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. We reminded God the prayers that had gone up and thanked him for the strong, healthy son we couldn't see at the time. I would have fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 27:13. One night at church early this spring, we were encouraged to stand and hold fast. The second part of Ephesians 6:13 says, having done all, stand. That's really where we were the majority of this year, just standing. We had done everything we knew to do. Later this summer, 
I read in the devotional how in Daniel 10, his answer was sent as soon as he prayed, but delayed by demonic forces. Not long after that, the same verse was shared at church. Just one of many, many confirmations that kept us going and reassured that our answer was on the way. It's probably mid-August before we finally begin to see consistent improvement. He was able to walk with the assistance of a child-sized walker. Started crawling and scooting around by October, a complete change in his demeanor. I cannot explain what it does to my heart to see a smile on his face, hear his laughter, constant chatter to watch him play with his little brother. All the symptoms pointed to some form of autoimmune disease, probably leukemia or rheumatoid arthritis, the diseases that are considered incurable. And the medical industry offers a lifetime of man-made solutions to manage the pain. Thankfully, God offered his son. Without this beautiful gift, we know Judah would have been subjected to months, maybe years of testing, treatment, rehab, and drugs with no guarantee of survival. Instead, his body is being completely and perfectly restored by the one who created it. The support we received was overwhelming. All over the country, people were interceding on Judah's behalf. We were especially thankful for the support from our church, the prayers, encouragement. We received texts, emails, letters, offers to make food. People shared scriptures, song, songs, their own testimonies, and several had dreams of Judah completely healed. Somebody reminded us of the passage about Moses' exhausted arms being held up by Aaron and her to defeat Amalek, a great visual of how we felt nearly every day. Several pretty devastating things happened to our family and friends this year. We started to really understand what it means to bear others' burdens and treat other trials as their own. Really hard times and unanswered questions were difficult hurdles, a realization that our human minds, we can't comprehend all that God is doing behind the scenes or grasp the bigger picture. That's part of our faith. We believe that we will understand someday. Well, it's been a really long year, and to say we're happy that it's over would be a huge understatement. Although this is lengthy, it seems so brief compared to the work God did in our hearts. It'd be hard to listen and describe every area he changed us. Our prayers, that our lives become that testimony, reflect those changes. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your kindness during this time. Steph and Tim and Judah and Zion.